Good morning, I'm Pastor Mike Overstreet, and this week we head into week six of our series, Therefore, where we are exploring our values at E3, the guardrails for life together that reflect God's character, emerge from the Holy Spirit moving in our church and inform how we seek to live together as a community. Seven values of E3 that we are diving into one at a time through the 12th chapter of the New Testament book of Romans. It is a fascinating chapter. You see, what we find in chapter 12 is that Paul uses this therefore statement to begin it, that he uses to shift from telling the story of Jesus over the previous 11 chapters to laying out how a community that believes in Jesus is called to exist in the world. It's a rich chapter that we are walking through, looking at each verse, as well as these massive, larger biblical themes that lie just beneath them to see how each piece informs our community's values, what we have been calling the necessary therefore of Christ's story, the church's life together. But before we get to our next value, I actually want to share a piece of my past that I've shared at E3 previously, and that is my teenage love for punk rock. You see, punk was my scene growing up. I oriented my entire life around this group. And it's hard to narrow down what exactly I loved about the punk scene so much. But in hindsight, I do believe that a huge part was how it gave me a strong sense of identity through clear boundary markers for inclusion in the group. You see, with punk rock, I was never confused about who was in or out because the scene was clearly defined in some key ways. For example, it was defined by how we looked. I always like to show these off whenever I can. I did used to wear these. We had our jackets, right? Covered in patches, marked up with the bands we liked, sometimes covered in way too much metal. We had certain shoes that we wore, right? Everyone always knows the converse, but I also had my combat boots. And we had hairstyles that my mother and my grandma never, ever accepted about me. <laughs> and on top of that, this group was also defined by certain shared activities and tastes. We had specific genres of music and bands that we loved. I loved things like The Clash that we all shared in common. And we also took part in various activities that defined us. Things like going to shows, skateboarding playing in punk bands ourselves. Well, not me. I was pretty awful at music, which I've shared at E3 before. And you see, what older folks didn't understand, especially when it came to my clothing and my hair, was that these clear boundary markers for this group were an immense comfort for me as an insecure teenager trying to find my place in the world. They provided a sense of belonging and inclusion that I didn't find in other spaces in my life at that age. That is the power of group identity. It provides a sense of certainty about who our people are in the world and how to identify them. And that is so comforting at times. But here's the thing. That clear group identity also produced real issues. You see, in some pockets, not all of the pockets of the scene, but in some pockets, it led to our group becoming incredibly exclusive. The boundary markers that began as a way of celebrating the unique commonalities and affirmations that we all shared in this group together, over time, for some, transformed into a tool 
not to define who we are, but to obsessively keep them out, those not like us, the outsiders, tools to maintain and enforce the status quo, to protect that comforting, clear group identity by keeping anyone outside of it away. And where this mentality took hold, the group grew more and more exclusive to its own detriment. It stopped inviting people in. It stopped growing new people in the community, which meant that there were people who would have brought a lot to our community that were kept out for arbitrary reasons. More so though, the danger of this that I saw was that the substance of the group's identity became toxic. It stopped being defined by the affirmations that made us as members of the punk scene so unique when it came to the rest of the world. And instead, it started becoming defined by its opposition to outsiders. It became an identity that was simply defined by we are us because we aren't them, those other people, which is a hollow, toxic identity for any group to hold. And I've since given a name to this phenomenon that I witnessed. It was my first taste of the tempting and destructive human impulse of tribalism, our built-in human desire to form groups with hard boundaries defined by clear commonalities, and then to use those groups to define our identity as compared to other groups. An impulse that makes us feel like we belong to something bigger than ourselves, but creates devastating results, exclusion, control, and us versus them mentalities. These things have just broken our world. It's an impulse that is in total opposition to what the church, the body of Christ, the people of God is called to be. And yet, like a disease, it has often spread through the church in its history. It is something that pops up over and over again, and the church must always be aware of where it finds itself seeping in to those tribal identities, which is why tribalism is what our next value at E3 seeks to identify, upend, and heal. The value of making room. Our belief that when the Holy Spirit is moving in and among us, we choose to make room for others, for the outsiders, for everyone. And to explore this value, we're going to pick up where we left off in Romans 12. Now, briefly, remember, Paul is writing this letter to a community that is deeply fractured along ethnic lines. You see, the Jewish communities in Rome had been harshly persecuted by the Romans for years leading up to Paul writing this letter, which created wounds and divisions within the church itself between the Jewish believers and the non-Jewish or the Gentile believers or the Roman believers. Essentially, what you find is this is a community where the oppressed and the oppressor from the larger culture are living together. Two groups with nothing in common but Jesus. And in that context, Paul writes this in our next part of Romans 12. We read, picking up in verse 13, contribute to the needs of the saints or all believers. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So Paul says to this community, I know about your divisions. Here's what you need to do to deal with that. 
You need to practice giving generously to anyone in need, regardless of their group. You need to practice extending hospitality, opening up your home, your families, your lives to strangers, regardless of their background. Oh, and on top of that, you should bless those who persecuted you or your people for being who you are. Now, do you think anyone in this community wants to make room by helping, inviting in, and blessing those people from the other group without distinction? I'm going to guess probably not. But Paul says you must if you are going to be the church as Christ created it to be. And I believe Paul is inviting this community to reflect the community that Jesus intended for the church to be. See, from the start, Jesus designed his community of followers with making room in mind. Jesus' very first community, the 12 disciples, makes this clear. Let me show you what I mean. We find their names listed in Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 2. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, Alphaeus, and Thaddeus. Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now, you may not have caught it, but this is a messy group, given the small amounts of information we've been given in this passage about them. See, what we know from the Gospels is that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were fishermen and almost assuredly incredibly poor at that. Alongside them, we see that Jesus has called this guy Matthew, who we're told was a tax collector before he started following Jesus. You might say, so what? Well, here's the thing. That means he's rich. And in Jewish culture in the first century, it means that he got rich off of extorting poor people like Peter, Andrew, James, and John. For the Roman Empire. And to add to that mess, Jesus calls this guy Simon, who we see is a zealot. Now, a zealot is an important word that we're given for a reason. A zealot was a religious radical who sought to protect the ethnic identity of the Jewish people through violence, to fight against the Roman occupation of the promised land by killing Roman oppressors and those who collaborated with them. In other words, people just like Matthew. So you have poor fishermen, the tax collector who made them poor, the radical who wants to kill the tax collector to liberate the poor fishermen, and Jesus calls them all together and says, you guys are a community now, and you're going to be the community that I'm starting my kingdom of God ministry with. Yikes. If you're like me, you might be thinking, Jesus is awful at starting communities and movements. I mean, this has none of the things that we find appealing about group identity. There's a horrible way to start a group. This has no clear rules about who's in and out. It has no uniformity. And it has every capacity from the beginning for radical disagreement and conflict, diverse worldviews, lifestyles, experiences, beliefs. And yet despite the fact that we as human beings want comfort and clarity from our communities, which tribalism gives us in droves, Jesus says to that impulse, too bad. He starts his kingdom movement with a community that includes people who would unequivocally exclude 
the others in the community if they had their way. Calling them together, despite their differences, into a single community where he is their only real commonality. Jesus throws tribalism out the window and he says the people of God in my story will be defined in a new way. Not through a list of black and white rules or identity markers, not through religious purity or tribal conformity. No, it will be defined through a simple, messy, but profound criteria. And hear me on this church. It will be defined by Jesus's invitation of grace extended to everyone and our willingness to accept it and move towards him. That is it. Jesus says the people of God is open to everyone now because the only boundary that I will draw on who's in and who's out is whether or not someone is moving towards me. And y'all, this preaches. We are wired for tribalism, for clear lines of who's in and out. We crave it and Jesus refuses to give it to us in his kingdom. In fact, he seems to believe that this part of us must be undone if his disciples are going to take part in his mission and the work to heal God's world that the church was created to be a part of. And there's a study that I came across as I reached for this sermon that I think brings home why this is true so strongly. It's called the Minimal Group Paradigm Experiment. Let me give you some backstory. See, it was created by this guy, Henry Tajfel, a Polish Jewish scholar who survived World War II but lost his entire family in the Holocaust. And Henry left this, this period of atrocity and became obsessed with group identity. He wanted to figure out how it formed and at what point it pushes us as human beings to treat other groups horribly. So he created an experiment to try and find the lowest possible point when group identity forms and tribalism kicks in and it begins impacting our, our behavior as human beings. To do so, he took 64 kids from the same school and he told them he was measuring how good they were at guessing. See, what he did was he asked each kid to look at a screen full of dots, essentially, and to guess the total number that appeared. They did that. And then he said, oh, by the way, while you're still here, we have another test we're going to run. It's, it's separate from this one, but we're going to use the first one to kind of decide what groups you end up in. So we're going to separate you, all you kids, into two different groups. And they told them they were in groups based on who underestimated and who overestimated the number of dots in the first guess. But in reality, it was actually totally random. Their groups were assigned at random. It had nothing to do with their guesses. And here's where it gets scary. See, the kids were then given an allotment of money and they were asked to split it up amongst everyone else in the experiment, only knowing two things, the names of the other participants and what fake dot group each one was in. And immediately, without being told to, the kids began assigning more money to the kids who shared their fake dot group and significantly less to those who didn't. Even sacrificing their own total gains if it meant making the other group lose. Which shocked Henry. 
Remember, the goal was to find the lowest possible line where group identity forms and impacts our behavior. And it doesn't get much lower than just a made-up guess on dots to determine your identity. And yet, instead, what he found was that group identity and tribalism formed so quickly and at the simplest commonalities that there was no line low enough. Even arbitrary, made-up differences trigger a tendency in us as human beings to form group identity and to begin favoring our own group at the expense of others. And this trial has been repeated over and over again. T-shirt colors, types of food, you name it, same effect. Now, imagine this. How do you think that tendency impacts us when we replace dots and guessing with something like politics, economics, culture, race? Spoiler, just look at human history, imperialism, racial supremacy, war, oppression. This part of our humanity has broken our world. This is why Jesus and Paul believes so strongly that the people of God must transcend tribalism at their very core. Jesus gave us this opaque, messy, open-ended criteria for inclusion in the people of God because I believe he knew that we would use any other boundary he gave us to exclude the other from his community, and that is not what he came to do. Instead, he calls us to become a community of radical diversity, inclusivity, invitation, and blessing towards everyone especially the outsider, because that's the only kind of community that can break us free from this human addiction to tribalism. That's why Paul can say to this fractured community, I know it's hard. I know that there are wounds and divisions. I know that there is a past and a story that created them, but you must push against that part of your broken humanity. You must be a community that makes room no matter what, because the world needs you to go a different way. It needs you to go the way of the kingdom, the way of this God who calls all people and all nations into what he's doing in the world, healing, redemption, rescue. This is what making room is all about in the story of God. And I want to close with what this might look like for E3. See, I believe that Paul's words in Romans and Jesus' own teachings and how he made up his community gives us a template that we can at least reflect on a little bit. I think it shows us a few key things. First, I think it shows us that making room in the kingdom of God means celebrating, not erasing diversity at every level of our church while maintaining unity through a common center that we all share the person of Jesus. See, the church is not called to erase differences. Jesus is not confined to one tribe. And when we get that wrong, we reshape Jesus and our tribal images of our culture, our worldview, our politics, whatever else we can. And y'all, it was meant to be the other way around. Making room means seeing Jesus, not just in those like us, but in the vast arrays of the beauty of humanity that moves towards him from every corner of God's good world recognizing 
that no one group captures him, that every single group on earth has its own idols that get in the way of seeing him clearly, that we need people from every tribe to bring their experience of Jesus to the church if we are going to find him completely. The church needs people with diverse worldviews, ways of thinking, beliefs, and backgrounds to find Jesus. We can't erase those things. If all I see are people in the church membership or leadership who are just like me and how I think and live, then we are missing an opportunity to see and reject or reflect Jesus more clearly. If we look at people who are different from us and don't agree with us and see that as a reason to exclude them from our community and our leadership, then we are missing an opportunity to see and reflect Jesus more completely. A church is closest to Jesus when it seeks unity through diversity, not by lacking it. Diverse, yet united by that common center, the person, teachings, and lordship of Jesus Christ and our shared desire to move towards him together. We must make room for kingdom diversity, from membership to leadership to be the church. And we must hold ourselves accountable when we fall short of that call. Second, making room acknowledges that remaining open to diversity is hard but necessary. And like Paul says, it requires a commitment to seeking blessing, not retaliation, when our differences, either intentionally or unintentionally, cause wounds. This is why we commit to things like the diversity dialogue at E3, because it takes work to be the church as we are called to be. We need to intentionally seek out dialogue, hard truths, and perspectives from people who experience the world differently than we do to be the church as it was created to be. We do this by making room for the voices of people who see what aspects of Jesus, our tribe, and our culture might be missing. We do this by making room for the voices from different groups than our own who see the problems in our world that we might be blind to because of our culture and our tribe, that we might miss. It means hearing and believing the experiences of people outside of our tribe, the outsiders, so we can stand with them and help them because that's what Jesus calls us to do. And do not get me wrong, church. Making room and becoming that kind of a community will be painful. It will require letting go of power and control. It will require change, listening, and seeking to understand others rather than to just simply be understood ourselves. It will require being silent and letting others speak whose voices have not been allowed to speak in the past. It will require repentance for our mistakes, whether we meant to cause them or not, and forgiveness for wounds caused sometimes out of ignorance, whether we meant to cause them or not. And above all, it will require choosing to bless, not retaliate against others, no matter what. It will be hard, but worth it, because this is who our God is. And when we reflect this, we reflect him more clearly. Third, making room means that we must extend hospitality and invitation to outsiders. God does not lead us into life of transformation so that we may keep it for ourselves. 
in the economy of God's grace, we are called to give away the blessings we've been given, which means that our church isn't for us. It is existing to bless the person who isn't here yet, to make room for the next person to come through our doors who needs help. To make room, our posture must always be oriented outwards. To be a church that makes room is to strive to be an invitational community that invites and brings in people no matter who they are or what they've done. Remaining open to everyone who walks through our doors looking for healing and treating them like when they come through those doors, they've just come home, whether we know them or not. <laughs> to make room is to never be content with only ever seeing the exact same people each week at our church. To make room, we need everyone committed to hospitality, invitation, and constantly looking for the next person to invite into the kingdom of God and the healing that comes with it. To be invited into our worship, our groups, our service, to be invited into what we say makes E3 so great. That's making room. And finally, making room means that we must give generously without distinction. See, we get this so wrong in the modern world. There is no human problem that is not our problem in the story of God, no matter where it is or whose problem it is. We are called to build God's kingdom everywhere for everyone at all times by sacrificing our time, talents, and treasures to the help of anyone in need, whether they're in Libya or they're in Apalachicola. In the kingdom of God, there are no borders between us and them or any other person on earth. Thus, making room requires tangible effort for caring for the least of these, no matter where they are found on our world. It's service that we must commit to. It's why service is so important to us at E3. It's why E3 volunteers show up early every Saturday morning to open, serve Tallahassee's food pantry and give food to 60 plus families a week who just need our help in this season. It's why volunteers give blood, sweat, and tears to build wheelchair ramps in the heat of Florida summers for the less fortunate who can't leave their homes. It's why we send teams to Guatemala, Haiti, and Uganda. And it's why just this year, through the hard work of our volunteer leaders and the giving of this community, our church has been able to donate thousands of dollars to global mission partners despite our own hardships here at home. And I say partners for a reason because they are our equals and their work is as profound as ours is and it is our honor to get to help them building God's kingdom in that part of the world. It's about equality. We've been able to help Good Shepherds fold the school, orphanage, and aid mission we partner with in Uganda to repair their two-tongue truck uh, that they use to deliver thousands of pounds of food to villages in their communities. We've been able to help our Guatemala mission partners keep going in this hard season of COVID, providing support that helps Porte Solom Solomon financially so that they can continue their work of building homes, providing scholarships to Mayan families in that area. We've been able to help Casa Tatloy, an alcohol rehab center in Guatemala, 
We've been able to help them make crucial operational repairs to stay open, to keep helping people, and in fact, to launch their new facility for women struggling with addiction, the first of its kind in the region, providing crucial care now to men and women struggling with addiction. I mean, that's, that, is, that is good news. That is a way that we are tangibly giving to help people who desperately need hope in a part of the world in which there is very little hope sometimes. That, on top of our continued support of Clinic Jubilee in Haiti, a clinic that provides crucial and affordable care to one of the poorest areas of Haiti. This is what it means to be the church. We have to make room our time, our talents, our treasures, how we see our world, how we see people in our world, how we break down borders and boundaries, how we reject tribalism, and how we move towards a kingdom that calls everyone in. And we don't do these things for us. It's not so we can brag. It's not so we can glorify ourselves. We do it because it helps us heal of the tribalism that has broken our world. We do it because it reflects the one who loved us, saved us, healed us. We do it because our God is a God who makes room in everything he does. And y'all, don't you want to be like that too? Don't you want to be a little bit more like that God and help heal this world? To do that, we have to be a church that makes room. We have to be a church that keeps the doors to the kingdom of God open. It doesn't try to close them. In the faces of people who just need our help. And if we do that, y'all, if we make room in these ways, I think we'll be a little bit of good news for this world. I don't know about y'all, but I could use a little bit more of good news in this world. Amen.